The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 7, Prosecution and Trial. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your narrator, John O'Connor, author of Postgate. How the Washington Post betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. One of the enduring mysteries of Watergate is how and why the truth, if it is the truth we are describing in this series, has not yet been widely known. We have shown CIA infiltration of the White House, the targeting of sexual information, and seeming widespread deception about the burglary's true purpose. However, One of democratic society's greatest features is that of public trials, where opposing sides, using cross-examination and rules of evidence, prove their cases to a judge and jury sworn to be fair. We've talked in this podcast series about the provenance of the Watergate burglaries, especially the second burglary, where arrests were made and evidence seized. Shouldn't the public trial of the burglary have elucidated the motives of the burglars and the principles for whom they were working? One would think so. FBI Deputy Associate Director Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat, was proud of the FBI's relentless investigation of these crimes. His agents had conducted, prior to the indictment of September 15, 1972, 1,500 interviews involving 14,000 man-hours of time and employing 250 agents. And this was just the FBI effort prior to the indictment. Agents thereafter continued to work tirelessly supporting the prosecution up to the burglary trial of January 1973. While the FBI was relentlessly pursuing the Watergate investigation, the U.S. Attorney's Office assigned as its chief trial lawyer the best prosecutor it had, Earl Silbert Jr., nicknamed Earl the Pearl, a dynamic courtroom lawyer. Silbert was joined by a tough, smart veteran prosecutor, Seymour Cy Glanzer. The third lawyer appointed, Donald Campbell, was a wiretapping expert. These lawyers were known to be ethical, skilled, and hardworking. They put key witnesses before the grand jury to complement the FBI's investigation and were considered to have been very thorough in their trial preparation. But those who wished to bury the truth were greatly aided by the high ethical standards of the government's trial team. That sense of prosecutorial ethics, ironically, served to keep the public in the dark about this meaningful burglary. These prosecutors planned to fully present the case as they saw it, all of which would go into the public record, but they scrupulously refrained from pretrial publicity, which might be prejudicial to the defendants. So, at least prior to the trial, the public did not have an inkling about the nature of the prosecution's case, where, among other facts, it would endeavor to prove the motive and intent of the burglars, the key unknown facts about this puzzling caper. If the burglars thought in good faith that this was a legitimate, presidentially authorized CIA operation, then each defendant so thinking would lack criminal intent. This would be called the CIA defense. What about the theory we have presented here that the burglary was in fact a CIA operation? Interestingly, the prosecutors were loath to claim CIA participation directly because they would thereby fall into the trap of authenticating this CIA defense which would exonerate all the defendants except perhaps Liddy, who was not in any way connected to the CIA. This is so because such a defense would negate criminal intent. 
However, the prosecutors anticipated that a CIA defense would possibly be offered. Always careful to label a CIA defense as, quote, spurious, unquote, or, quote, phony, unquote. Why did they anticipate this defense? Because the evidence could fit a CIA defense, as the prosecutors knew, and Hunt was seeking evidence to support such a claim, as the prosecutors also knew. The prosecutors knew that Hunt was working for a CIA cover company, Mullen. They saw significance in the burglar's tapping of the phone of Spencer Oliver Jr., while not listening to more important Democrats like Larry O'Brien or Robert Strauss, the DNC's prominent treasurer. Finally, they saw strong relevance in the monitoring of the highly intimate conversations Baldwin would testify he overheard. In short, the prosecutors saw all the odd elements of Watergate that pointed to it as being anything but campaign strategy eavesdropping. This is much of the same evidence we have presented to you in earlier podcasts. Yet, even today, very few in our country understand the Watergate to have had these elements. Why? As we will show later, the Washington Post, seen as the main repository of all Watergate knowledge, has consistently slanted its reporting toward the sole and exclusive theme of Nixonian evil. It has never had the motive to publish a number of the very clear facts that we are presenting in this podcast, even though they would not provide a defense for Nixon's commission of crimes. They would likely have, though, helped Nixon stave off impeachment while splattering dirt on the DNC, with which the Post was virtually a Siamese twin. When the Post was founded in 1877, it proudly announced that it was the official organ of the Democratic Party, and it has stayed close thereafter. The Post and the DNC were so close in 1972 that the two institutions shared a general counsel, Joseph Califano of the prominent Democratic law firm of Williams, Connolly, and Califano. That firm, interestingly enough, was handling the litigation brought by the DNC against the CRP after the burglary. Simply knowing the facts, as any trial lawyer will tell you, is not the whole game, sometimes not even half of it. It's also important to put the evidence together in a coherent narrative whole. The case the prosecutors put together using the massive facts uncovered by the investigation showed a strong presence of the CIA in Watergate while the prosecutors were careful not to validate the CIA defense contemplated by Hunt. The FBI and Silbert's office had closely analyzed the massive factual material gathered. By the time of trial, Silbert had put these facts together in a good but not perfect way. Some of his narrative fits the facts well, while other parts were less impressively inferred. It may well be, of course, that avoiding the CIA defense was part of Silbert's challenge and made him stretch the factual narrative to avoid that defense. To assert that Watergate was a legitimate CIA mission would require the element of White House approval, since the CIA could not pursue a domestic operation without special authorization from the White House. Such approval would serve to sully Silbert's chief executive, Richard Nixon. And the use of campaign funds for the burglars would also suggest a collateral White House effort, which might be for an end other than the CIA's. So to avoid implicating his ultimate bosses in the White House, it may well be that Silbert avoided some of the inferences that we make in this podcast. In any case, Silbert needed to explain both CIA involvement in the burglary, which was obvious, and use of campaign funds while also fitting in the idea of the naughty talk overheard in such a way to avoid a legitimate CIA defense and also high White House involvement. 
Silbert putting the evidence gathered in, again, a reasonable but imperfect way, intended to show that using campaign funds intended for security, Hunt went off on his own frolic and detour to get dirt on Spencer Oliver Jr. In a truly amazing coincidence, Oliver's father, of course named Spencer Oliver Sr., was a Mullen official and a rival of Hunt's for subsequent ownership and control of the fat CIA cover contract that Mullen had. In fact, Hunt had already successfully objected to Junior's joining Mullen. In this regard, we would offer a side note. There has been speculation that Spencer Oliver Jr. was, like his father, a CIA asset, and for that reason, a candidate to work with Mullen. We have no opinion on that speculation, but would say it is certainly consistent with the rest of the evidence. Silbert's theory was that by getting girly dirt on Jr., Hunt could use that information to push out senior from ownership of Mullen. All of this theory fit roughly with the evidence while exonerating the White House and avoiding a legitimate CIA defense. So even though this was not a spot-on reconciliation of the facts with Silbert's overarching narrative, this presentation of the case would promise to make a very large public splash, perhaps to be seized on by a White House seeking to explain a burglary that had it scratching its collective head, with the exception, of course, of the Wiley Dean. After the Hermes notebooks went missing, Hunt's wife died, and McCord refused to cooperate. Hunt, as explained, gave in to Dean's pressure to plead guilty. Therefore, Silbert would not need to combat Hunt's CIA defense with the explication of the role of the two Olivers. Let's pause here. If there were no basis for Hunt's potential CIA defense, Silbert would not have, as he did, prepared for it. However, at this distant remove, there will still be some who claim that Hunt never seriously intended to pursue this defense. But that the prosecutors had learned of the potential defense and were preparing for it, as Silbert and Glanzer both admitted in Silbert's later confirmation hearings, suggests that Hunt's lawyer had let it be known that such a defense was planned. Hunt's lawyer, William Bittman, likely spoke about the defense in discussions with the prosecution over the import of the missing Hermes notebooks. After all, Bittman would have likely screamed bloody murder to the prosecutors in an effort to claim that the defense was prejudiced by the failure of the prosecution to locate the notebooks, likely claiming possible government misconduct. As we saw in the last episode, once Hunt had such evidence of misconduct by Dean in the fall of 1973, burglars Eugenio Martinez and Virgilio Gonzalez did move to withdraw their pleas on the grounds that they had always thought that this was a legitimate CIA mission. They claimed the government had destroyed evidence which would have assisted their defense. With Hunt's guilty plea, ironically, the prosecutor would lose one basis to fight for admission of key evidence to support its alternative version of CIA involvement, albeit a loss that Silbert did not likely realize at the time to have been critical. One key component of Silbert's case was Baldwin's testimony that he monitored explicitly intimate racy talk, which Silbert intended to hang around Oliver Jr.'s neck and vicariously around Hunt's. Silbert intended only that Baldwin, in his testimony, generally characterize the overhearings without specifying any conversation in detail, and thereby not gratuitously embarrassing any one particular individual with these tawdry facts. Unfortunately for Silbert, and ultimately for the White House and the public, the Democrats were ready for Silbert, most likely knowing quite well what Baldwin had overheard. 
Baldwin was represented by a loyal Democrat, John Casadento of Hartford, Connecticut, who later was awarded a judgeship with the help of the influential Joseph Califano of the DNC law firm Williams, Connolly, and Califano. So the Democrats knew intimately what Baldwin would say if permitted to answer and did not like what those answers would be. Indeed, Califano's firm sent a lawyer to Hartford to debrief Casadento with Baldwin in an adjoining room and confirm what they likely already knew about how he would answer key questions. In one of the many, many stupidities that led to Nixon's disgrace immediately following the burglaries, the CRP lawyers elected not to represent Baldwin on the foolish theory that he was being paid by McCord, not the CRP through Liddy, and thus the CRP could dissociate itself from Baldwin. But this reflexive response was far more harmful than helpful. The Republicans thus broke the cardinal rule applicable to a party whose underling has been located by the prosecution. Hire and pay for his lawyer. If you are a drug dealer and one of your runners has been arrested, you pay for his lawyer in the hope he will not turn against you. So with the CRP refusing to represent Baldwin, he was eagerly represented by a loyal Democrat, Casadento, an ally of DNC General Counsel Joseph Califano. So this was a huge mistake on the part of the Republicans, one of many that led to Richard Nixon's resignation. The Democrats then, knowing of Baldwin's expected testimony, hired noted civil rights and ACLU lawyer Charles Morgan Jr. to prevent Baldwin's testimony about naughty DNC conversations. It was Morgan's theory that the court could block any repetition in court of an illegally overheard conversation on the grounds that it was clearly illegal to transmit illegally overheard conversation outside of a courtroom setting. First, though, Morgan needed to smoke out Silbert to confirm that he indeed intended to introduce into evidence these meretricious conversations. So Morgan invited Silbert and his co-lawyer Glanzer to lunch, where he also brought his associate Hope Eastman, likely as a witness. As the luncheon discussion proceeded, at some point Earl Silbert dramatically pounded the lunch table, saying, quote, Howard Hunt was trying to blackmail Spencer Oliver Jr., and I'm going to prove it, unquote. Of course, in order to prove that Hunt was trying to blackmail Spencer Oliver Sr., the prosecution would have had to prove that Hunt was overhearing salacious conversations, which, of course, Silbert admitted at the lunch. So the lunch tab which Morgan expended was well worth it. He now had the basis for his motion, that is, the possibility that the prosecution would present in evidence descriptions of illegally overheard conversations, conversations which suggested a Bordello referral system run out of the DNC. On the first morning the trial was set, when lawyers would make preliminary motions before picking the jury, Morgan appeared in court and asked permission from Judge Sirica to file a brief prohibiting the prosecution from questioning Baldwin about what he had overheard. The theory was that they would be asking him about the contents of illegally wiretapped conversations. By claiming to represent both Secretary Maxie Wells and Spencer Oliver Jr., as well as the Association of Democratic Chairmen, Morgan could point to his clients as being victims of the disclosure of such conversations in court. However, a criminal case has only two sets of parties, the government and the defense. Individuals such as Wells and Oliver were not parties to the case, and they had no standing to make a motion in court. Sirica therefore quite properly told Morgan that he could not file a brief 
or present argument in court because he was not representing a party to the case. After the mid-morning recess, Sirica told Morgan he had reconsidered and would permit the filing of a brief and later argument. It's not clear whether Sirica had talked to anyone at the break who persuaded him to change his mind, but change his mind he did. Morgan postulated his theory later in open court that the prosecution was going to attempt to show blackmail as the motive for the crime. Introduction of this evidence would have been sensational. For the first time, the public would have heard not about political strategies or campaign matters, but of very intimate sexual assignations between males and females. There is no doubt that the whole tenor of Watergate would have changed had the public known that these conversations were the essence of what had been overheard. Sirica then commented from the bench during the argument, Blackmail. That's the first I've ever heard of that. In his lively book on the matter, Morgan quipped that actually Judge Sirica had heard that same statement just 10 minutes earlier when Gerald Alch, McCord's lawyer, said it. Silbert argued to Sirica that he did not intend to offer specific details of the conversations nor would he ask for the names of the participants on the call, and therefore would not actually be asking Baldwin to repeat conversations. It was Morgan's argument that cross-examination would allow the defense lawyers to get into the details of the conversation, which would then contravene at least his view of the law. In our humble opinion, this argument was somewhat nonsensical, because salacious matters come up in trials very frequently, and the courts have wide latitude to restrict the scope of questioning to avoid unnecessary testimony. In this instance, since there was nothing to be gained from getting into the details of sexual talk, the court could have easily limited the questioning to general characterization of the conversations. More to the point, there's nothing illegal about repeating illegally overheard conversations in court. After all, that's how one proves such a crime. After hearing the arguments, Sirica ruled, we think properly, that the prosecution could proceed as planned and ask Baldwin to characterize the conversations. He did allow that he would give Morgan a chance for an immediate emergency appeal uh, to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which Morgan promptly did. Approximately a week later, after more briefing, once again the theme of blackmail was argued back and forth between Morgan and Silbert, this time before the Court of Appeals. The very liberal Democratic mainstay of the appeals court, Judge David Bazelon, wondered aloud why anyone would try to blackmail Spencer Oliver Jr., a man of modest means, a question that showed that the court did not truly understand the theory of Silbert's case. Eventually, the court sided with Morgan and ruled that the prosecution could not ask Baldwin what was overheard, and if at any point in the trial Silbert felt that it was necessary to delve into that area, he had to inform Judge Sirica in chambers at which point Morgan could have had an immediate right of appeal to the Court of Appeals. This ruling, of course, knocked the wind out of Silbert's sails. Silbert then tried a very vanilla wiretapping case, not delving into the CIA, Mullen, or naughty talk. What Morgan had astutely called his desperation pass play was completed for a touchdown in the closing seconds. It was helpful to this pass play that the referee was an ardent Democrat, Judge Bazelon, who, to be fair, likely thought the prosecution was simply attempting to embarrass individual Democrats. It does not appear that Bazelon truly understood what the case was about. In another of the many ironies of the Watergate scandal, had Hunt not pled guilty and thus been allowed to pursue a CIA defense, then it would have been all but impossible for the appellate court to rule as it did. But with Hunt out of the way and no defense that necessarily required resort to the types of conversations being overheard, 
Silbert had nowhere to go with his theory of extortion based upon control of Mullen and Company. He proceeded then to try a straightforward burglary case where he convicted McCord and Liddy after all the other defendants had pleaded guilty. With these appellate court rulings, in our view clearly erroneous and dramatically so, Silbert lost all appetite for his Hunt Mullen extortion theme. He, he did not then desire to inquire into the burglar's document copying intentions, because such a target tends to give an alternative goal for the burglary other than wiretapping, and wiretapping was the charge that Silbert sought to prove here. So nothing was said during the trial that the main target was document copying. The trial thus ended without the public hearing one morsel about the likely purpose of this odd burglary. Ironically, Judge Sirica made big headlines ultimately leading to his being named Time Man of the Year, for raging that the prosecution had not proved the motive for the burglaries, precisely what Silbert had sought to prove, but denied by the appellate court in one of the many ironies of Watergate. Meanwhile, the paper of record, the Post, did not print a word about the drama concerning the meretricious overhearings. That is, the central thrust of Morgan's motion and arguments about the planned blackmail theme. To be sure, the Washington Star News covered the blackmail discussions that were undertaken both in Syracuse court and Baslin's, as did the Baltimore Sun, but the Post did not. In short, there was never a wide public discussion of what information the blackmailers were supposedly seeking that motivated the Watergate burglary, or even a wide public discussion of any theme of blackmail. In one of the ironies of Watergate, and there are many, the public trial before Judge Sirica Time Magazine's Man of the Year, actually was in effect a cover-up of the real story of the Watergate burglary. The public did not learn the facts that may have shed light on the motives for this burglary, and one of Watergate's mysteries, the target, survived a public trial without being exposed. But what lay ahead could not have been comforting for the CIA. Would any of the knowledgeable witnesses crack under pressure? Would an ostensibly fearless press crack the case and tell the public that the CIA had been listening to naughty talk. What about John Dean? Would his role in the burglary be uncovered and necessarily implicate the CIA, since both were interested in lurid assignations? Putting aside the CIA, would the Nixon administration learn who in its administration was behind the burglary? Would the public learn about the DNC's Bordello referral program? The failure of the prosecution to put on evidence of the blackmail theme kept the White House from looking anew at this burglary, that is, to ascertain who, if anyone, in the administration would care about listening to sex talk and why. This revelation would certainly have buttressed the straight-laced Mitchell's claim that he did not authorize the burglary. It would have supported Nixon's claim that he did not believe that the White House had been involved in the burglary and therefore was not covering up for his administration and certainly that he was not hiding known campaign hijinks, since the sex life of a Montana chairman was hardly pertinent to a presidential campaign. But what was important about the trial was that it kept both the CIA and the DNC from being exposed for their sexual projects, and prevented for the moment the Nixon administration from focusing on its cover-up counsel, John Dean. At the end of the burglary trial, the White House had no idea that its chief defense lawyer, Dean, was withholding from his clients his own involvement in the scandal. And as well, the White House and the public had heard little about the central role of the CIA. In the two years following the burglary trial, having successfully kept from view their participation in Watergate, the CIA, 
the DNC, and Dean would now all strive to keep these cats in the bag. How they did that will lead us to exploring several more of the mysteries of Watergate. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.